0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with the Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who wear our country's uniform. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, in the first of a two-part episode, we'll hear from Lieutenant Colonel Winston M. Roche. Lieutenant Colonel Roche served in the National Guard during World War I. He was 93 years old when he recorded this interview.
1: Uh, I'm a retired Lieutenant Colonel Winston M. Roche of the... Uh, United States Army of uh, Seventh Engineers of the 5th Division, regular division. I'm 93 years old, and uh, I served in World War One for over 22 months. And uh, then when I came out after the armistice, I enlisted in the National Guard and retired in 1943. All we had were a few regulars who were on the Mexican border fighting the the Mexican bandits who were continually sniping at Texas and uh, those border states. And uh, I suppose that they had uh, desires on getting California and the West Coast back into their hands. But they were rebels and they never last long, They just or a continued nuisance, they would come in over the border. And uh, I served in the last portions of the famous Seventh Cavalry organization that was on the border under John J. Pershing, who later became the commanding general of all World War I troops. I think he was the first five-star general that we had but uh, basically it was a real citizens army and was composed mostly of young men oh in their teens up to 25 or so that were in business school or just graduating from school and uh, on the farms of course i could ride a horse on raised on a a farm, but uh, I knew nothing about cavalry warfare. So uh, it's just the background of what the officers faced the terrific job that they had ahead of them to train us and bring us up to a a stature that would withstand modern warfare. And uh, they, of course, do a hell of a lot more than we did about what we were going to face in France. Now, that war had been going on since 1914, and we didn't go in until April the 6th, 1917. And I went in in late May in 17. So, naturally, we were aggressive, cocky, well protected kids, we had all had been brought up by good families. We went to church. All of my friends went to church. I still go. I just came home in church, and we had ideal boyhoods. We had all the, all the things swimming holes and everything. Nothing uh, technologically advanced or anything like that. Uh, we had the telephone sister rang at turn the turned a bell on to talk through and stuff like that. And uh, so uh, our bo- movie uh, movie theaters, all of the pictures were accompanied by a pianist. And uh, so when the action got wild and furious on the cowboys and in the Indians or the soldiers and in the Indians, the pianists would go into some rock and rolling deal and make a lot of noise and try to raise your excitement and uh, he'd be banging on the little piano and uh, this would affect us, this would instill in us the desire to get on one of those horses and chase those Indians and uh, get into the fray. Then the uh, magazines would carry, once in a while, pictures, wonderful pictures, drawn by artists uh, of the uh, action on the Western Front. And uh, you show the dashing cavalrymen, or the beautiful white, black horses chasing the enemy with their sabers flashing in the sun. And, and this all had a terrific impact on me. And, uh, and I saw myself uh, on one of those horses chasing after the dirty Huns. And, and Well, uh, we, I, I enlisted uh, right after getting out of high school. By permission, my daddy wrote a letter to the uh, commandant here in the old Pacific Electric Building on 6th and Main Streets, and uh, he put him to work as a superintendent of the Street Maintenance Department. So naturally, he was in politics. All politicians having sons wanted a boy in the Army or the Navy, and so I got his permission And that's how I got in. I was sent to San Francisco, Angel Island, through the Presidio, got my uh, uniform and everything. Then I was sent from there down to Camp Houston in San Antonio, Texas. There I was transferred to the early Air Force. When they found out that I was in Specializing in mathematics in school, I had a a bent for math, so uh, I was desirous in my mind when I went in the army. That of course I didn't dream of any air force activity because we didn't have an air force, and I of course had seen the pictures of the daring young men and their flying machines and their dogfights and all that stuff, but uh, it never dawned on me until I was transferred to the Air Force and I learned at Kelly Field there, adjacent to uh, Camp uh, Upton. So I qualified in JN4 Jennies with the OX5 engine in the famous Curtis engine. And uh, then, when, as I say, when they be- got to the point where they got enough organized to find out that I was a mathematician, even at that age, 17, where they uh, just arbitrarily transferred me to the engineers. They had a fighter, single wing, low wing monoplane fighter, Thomas Morse Scout. I even flew that on a couple short hops, and that aircraft was so mean and treacherous it killed more men than could qualify in it. So they had to let that go. And later on, they imported some Spads and Newports and and uh, some DH4s, uh, the De Havilland, and it it was more sophisticated. It was an English aircraft, and. the English and the French, by this time, had some good airplanes—Spad, Newport. English had the Bristol Fives and the, uh, the Sopwith Camels, and uh, so they were way ahead of us. We—we we were just kindergarten and everything. So I went where I was told. Uh, last thing my dad told me said, "Be a good soldier." So, I, being a a good kid. <laughs> I minded him, and all through the war, I remember what my dad told me, be a good soldier. And I was.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: A trainee, engineer trainee was sent immediately into the, we had earthworks trenches at the camp in Texas, San Antonio. And we learned how to build trenches and uh, fire steps and, and how, how to build them out of nothing. Just dig them up out of the dirt and get support. And we had to in those days dig a hole is one of the first things you learn to do. And so I progressed on through, and of course I was in France 30 days after I enlisted here. (laughs) I was 3,000 miles from home in 30 days. We went to training camps right away, that meant it took us 14 days to cross in a 13-ship convoy didn't lose any. We got across okay. We landed Liverpool first and uh, trained at Winchester for a while with the British troops. And then we were sent and I landed at La Harve. And, and that was an all-night trip across that channel in those days. But let me get on with my training. I, I got my training mostly in France. And of course I was working with French troops because we had no American uh, training camps there yet. And I trained with uh, two different French divisions and I served under Marshal Giraud and uh, I served under PETAIN, P-E-T-A-I-N and of course under the direction of Joffre, Marshal Joffre. We used to call him, most of my uh, instruction came from French uh, and British officers. And when we went into action, the first action was uh, in 1918. We would be sent up to the line with nothing but our sidearm and our uh, trench knives as observers. And we would go along with the British or the French, whichever we were assigned to, and uh, we would watch them. We didn't participate unless we were attacked. Of course, then we would do our best to shoot at the enemy. But uh, we were students, actually, learning how to build redoubts and trenches and... In my entire point of action with the American army, I never saw the beauty of France. Everything I went through, the path that I took, all the towns we went through were devastated. There were just hooks standing bare walls. All the fields were shot up. The forests we went through were mostly just bare Stacks or uh, trunks towering into the sky with all the leaves shot off, most of the branches shot off. So to us, France was a completely devastated country. The trenches had to have what they call observation trenches. Now, the observation trenches, a thin, narrow, one-man style of highway out into no-man's land. You would dig under the wire. And of course, remember I told you we had no radio, nothing like that. So we were equipped with flares, white and red flares. There'd be a man out there standing guard. And you uh, could be set upon any moment from raiding parties, it's in a group of ten troops out. So and they would Try to take a prisoner to get into our sector and get a prisoner or two and take them back with them and get some information and uh, so we had two men in these observation trenches went out every so many hundreds of yards there'd be an observation trench out there and one man would get the information try to make a estimation on how many they were in the raiding party and, and we would uh, get back one man to go back to the main dugout and tell them what was going on and then they'd have uh, a soldier from the nearest supporting observation point shoot a flare so as not to disturb these people in front of us if you get what I mean because the action was in our area. And when that flare went off, the second or third one down on the other side would shoot a flare up to light up no man's land so we could zero in on this raiding party. And uh, there was some vicious uh, hand-to-hand combat out there in the dark sometime when you couldn't see uh, much more than 10 feet or so from you. Black night, or maybe it might be raining. So, uh, to talk about combat and tell you what it's like is impossible. Think for a moment, how would you feel if I told you now, and there was someone in my driveway who was threatening us And I gave you one of my old trench knives and told you to go out there and stick this guy if he had to be stuck, if he wouldn't leave, stick him in the stomach. You don't think about killing a man per se. My reactions were, it was just an object. There was a dark object out there right in front of me and I had to pump two or three shots into it, which I did because I didn't I couldn't stop and think I might be killing some father or son. You can't think about those things. It's either him or you. That's the main thing that kept me going when I got into I had some vicious hand to hand combat and uh, but this time, I was—I was a man. I wasn't a kid anymore. You grow up overnight. When you're you're under fire, in a situation with these crashing shells all around you, and uh, the constant noise, the misery, the uncomfortableness—you're either always sleepy as hell, hungry. Are tired. So to talk about and think about killing a man, you don't. You just do your job and take care of the enemy to keep him from getting you or your buddies. The minute you do that, you're a dead duck, because you're gonna hesitate a second and let him get off the first shot or the first jab you got to go after them and do it first. You've got to be aggressive. And uh, you adopt an attitude, a fatalistic attitude of, you don't know whether you're going to be here tomorrow or not. And so you live for today. You never make any plans. And we also, we were instructed, try not to make too good a friendship with, be friendly to everybody, of course. And, Cooperative, but don't make any if you can help it, don't make anybody buddy, because you might be transferred the next day, or you might be killed. Then you'd be devastated and you won't be a good soldier anymore. You have to be a professional. You have to learn that it's either him or you. And uh that will sustain you. And then you have your own private thoughts of your home, your loved ones, the wonderful comforts you've left behind. And it gets to the point if you've been there six or eight months in almost constant action and this continual deafening noise, you can't believe how this this affects you. Now, you've heard of PTSD, post-traumatic syndrome from Vietnam. I know what they mean. What they're talking about is shell shock. And we had it in gobs in World War I. I had two bad attacks of it, and it affected my nerves, and uh, I, I've been like this ever since I came out of the Army. This is post-traumatic syndrome, and uh, it's a big deal in Vietnam. We came home with no treatment whatsoever for it, but that's another story. So uh, we had everything. We were taken in like a bunch of uh, city kids by a bunch of slick gamblers, by the... uh, vicissitudes of war the uh in the french villages when we'd have to be withdrawn to replace our casualties to replace our ammunition to replace a lost gas mask or something the troops would be besieged by the french women young and old There were no Frenchmen in the villages, the little villages. And as the front moved, they would come back to their homes and try to pick up life before they were driven out. That's a homing instinct that you, all of you, have. And uh, everybody wants to go home sooner or later. We were all suckers for these people. And I was no... No angel by any means, but I was a good kid. And I had seen many of my comrades put up against the firing squad for deserting a post under fire or some other uh, action that they engaged in detrimental to the safety of the Army. So I've seen my own people executed. Okay, now there are basically three types of artillery shells in my experiences. The 155s, that's 155 millimeter, and our main backup gun was the French 75, Millimeter. And uh, then the uh, 155, 155s were used for demolition in the rear, support bases, ammunition dumps, roads preceding uh, an assault, and things of this kind. And then we had the 4.09, we had the 75 millimeter. And we had the machine guns and the mortars, Stokes mortars, and things like this. But uh, there's an old saying in the Army, you never hear the one that hits you. So if you hear them coming, you you get to the point where you think, well, I hear that sucker and it's not going to hit me. And so you hit the dirt or hit get in the trench and duck or you get in a shell hole, and then they, you have the concussion. And I've actually had my helmet blown off with the chin strap under my chin. And as I pointed out, they always say, you don't ever have to worry about the bullet that's gonna hit you, because you never hear it. If it kills you, it kills you. You have to be a fatalist. And uh, you get so used to the buzzing bullets, explosions of shells, and the funny zinging sound of a mortar coming at you. And those were the things that uh, were every day just like going out and having breakfast. When you come out of the dugout or from wherever you were sleeping, you're back into your world, you felt comfortable. Actually, you felt comfortable. Of course, now I don't mean that it gave the impression that we were happy to be there, but this is what we had to do. And we knew we were going to be there until we were either wounded or killed or the war stopped. So this is your life. If you know you're going over in the morning, you sleep fitfully because you know that this could be your last night on Earth as a mortal. Uh, You really feel that way. You really think maybe this is my time. As I say, your stomach is in butterflies. And if you're not scared, you're in trouble. There's something wrong with you because, boy, you better be scared and you better duck and you better hit those shell holes when you get a chance. And just like trying to tell you how good a good glass of beer is on a hot day, you can't explain it, you have to be there. That was World War I
0: veteran, Lieutenant Colonel Winston Roche. We'll hear more from him in the next episode of Warriors In Their Own Words. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to see part two in your feed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. Warriors In Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Assistant producer is Declan Roars. Audio engineer is Sean Ruhl-Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.